Hey folks, this is Big Carp George coming from the East Bay in San Francisco area. Uh, looking forward to a wonderful discussion on Talking Blues. So I have to ask, how did you get the name Big Harp George? Where does that come from? Well, uh, it, yeah, that comes from the fact that I uh, feature the chromatic harmonica, which as you probably know is, is quite a lot bigger than the little diatonic, the 10-hole diatonic that most people play. Um, I favor either the 16-hole version uh, or the 12-hole version, and both of them are, both of them are big. And um, the, uh, it, it has been called the big harp uh, by a number of people in the blues world. I think, you know, George Smith used to refer to it as the big harp. And right. because I play it, you know, 90% of the time, um, big harp George seemed to fit. So tell me how the harmonica came into your life. My older brother was, uh, who, with whom I've always been close, uh, was into music. And, um, and I believe he had, he bought a few harmonicas and, uh, he was also playing guitar at the time and he just didn't take to it or didn't, didn't, you know, stick with it or whatever. And so he gave me, I think my first harmonica. And, uh, I guess I just wasn't talented enough at a musician to play guitar. So I, I persisted on the harmonica. Did you fall in love with the instrument immediately? Well, I tell you what, the, the thing that really got me going on the harmonica in terms of, of sound was hearing Paul Butterfield, hmm. which my other brother, my, my, well, another one of my three brothers, my eldest brother, Bill, uh, he introduced us, he introduced the family to Paul Butterfield uh, in, the, in the mid-60s after having seen Paul Butterfield perform, and he brought home the album East West. And so I, I heard that sound and I thought, oh, my God, I, I didn't realize the little harmonica was capable of that kind of that kind of, you know, that kind of sound. So that's what really got me excited about it. It's amazing how many people have mentioned that album. It's a great album. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful album. Um, and, you know, it just came at a time, I think, that that a lot of people were opening their ears to you know to 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 new sounds and uh boy it sure it sure struck me and of course you know the in in for a lot of um a lot of kids in the united states uh you know it was it was first the beatles and the rolling stones and you know each of each of which played had harmonica on a few songs and wasn't really fantastic harmonica but at least you know it got us going um and then uh i i think you know, familiarity with that, with that popular music made the blues a little more, you know, a little more accessible. It was kind of like gateway, uh, gateway music. Mm -hmm. And then in turn, you know, Butterfield was gateway music for me to the original uh, Chicago, you know, greats, you know, and, and others, of course, other than the Chicago players, but, you know, James Cotton and Junior Wells and little Walter and Sonny Boy Williamson and all those people. If I'm not mistaken, you picked up the harmonica around the age of 12. I think I might have been a little older than that. I don't have a clear memory of, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure I was in high school, which I might have started when I was 12. 
but I think I was probably 13, 13, 14 years old when I started. I, I had been a singer in bands even earlier than that, however. I had, I'd, I'd been performing in bands um, like by age 11 or so. What kind of stuff were you playing? Pop covers. <laughs> Gloria. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. You know, Beatles, Beatles, Beatles songs, Rolling Stone songs. You know, whatever, whatever was popular at the time. It's, it's been a long time. I don't, I don't, you know, beyond Gloria, I'm not sure I remember (laughs) any other songs that we did. Did singing come easy to you? Well, let's, let's put it this way. I mean, yes, I, I, uh, you know, I, I enjoy, I always enjoyed singing. I always, you know, felt I had a certain facility for it, uh, I gained humility later in life as I, as I learned, you know, Hey, there's a lot more to this to, you know, if you want to really do it well, um, you got to work at it. It's, it's, at least I have to work at it. And then I think most, most really talented singers are, you know, are disciplined musicians as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have to say that I, I was naive about, about singing. Um, and I just thought, well, you know, you either had a good voice or you didn't. And I didn't realize how much training and work can make a difference in, you know, in, in singing. So um, I might I might have thought I was pretty good. And, and I realized there's there's more to the craft than than I was aware. When you said you, you were humbled by it, what, was there a moment that something yeah. happened or that changed? Well, your view? yeah. Yeah. One, one thing that happened was, you know, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was talking with Curtis Salgado Mm -hmm. and I was, you know, getting, getting his, um, his input. He was, he was kind enough to give me some feedback early on, you know, shortly after I'm I'm not even sure I had recorded my first album. I might not have. Uh, And, you know, he told me that he still trains you know, he goes to a, he works with a voice coach and, right. you know, I think Curtis is one of the most marvelous voices on the scene today. And I've always just loved his, his, his singing. Um, and, and that kind of struck me, you know, cause I, here's a guy at, sort of at the pinnacle of the, of, of the, of the, of, of the music scene and he's still working, you know, he's still, he's still trying to get better. He's still working on things. I didn't ask him specifically what he worked on, uh, he told me who he worked with. Um, and I thought, well, shoot, you know, if Curtis is, is working, I need to get to work myself. <laughs> he is one of the best for sure. Um, let's go back to. He's one. Yeah, I just love Curtis. Let's go back to your high school days. Um, and then I think going into university, you still played in bands. Yeah. And this was just a hobby thing. Did you ever think that maybe. Well, so. My my first, I I didn't play in any bands when I was in high school, uh, but I did play in a band at I was at I started off uh, my college at at UC Davis in California, um, and I I started playing with a couple of guys who were older than me. I was I was probably I was seventeen or eighteen. I don't remember exactly how old I was. I think I was seventeen, and um, and they were in their late twenties, early thirties or so, um, much better, much more experienced musicians than me. Um, and, uh, I was, <laughs> I was lucky that they, that they took me on, but I, you know, I got a little experience in performing and we played in, in, um, you know, bars and parties and that sort of thing. Um, 
so that was that was uh, the beginning of my performing as a as a as a as a blues musician. Your your question about whether I can you know at what point did I consider it something other than a hobby? Well, in my mid twenties, I did seriously think about doing music professionally. But by that time, I was, you know, I was in graduate school. I had spent some time in the Arab world, in you know, in the Middle East, traveled around a lot, um, and I had become totally obsessed with that region of the world. And uh, and of course, you know, obsessed uh, with the culture, with the food, with the language, with the people. Um, with the music, uh, and with the, you know, with the politics, to be honest with you, you know, my father was Palestinian and I grew up, you know, uh, actually, I mean, in my early years, I wasn't really particularly aware of our ethnicity, my ethnicity. Um, I just, you know, I mean, I had, I had, you know, my dad, I wasn't even aware that my dad had an accent, my, my hmm. friends would come over and they'd say, oh, your dad has such a beautiful accent. I go, what, what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> that's, that's my dad. That's how he talks, you know? Um, and anyway, uh, but the 1967 war had a big impact on my family, not in a, not in a direct sense, but, you know, both of my parents, my mother was American, but, you know, d- despite her ethnicity, she also became very engaged in, in issues uh, related to Palestine, speaking out on behalf of Palestinian rights and justice and peace in the Middle East. Both my parents were, um, you know, were sort of active in public speaking and writing and community organizing and that sort of thing. Uh, so I grew up in that environment and I was part of it. Were you brought up with the Palestinian culture um, heavy in, in your family or was that not really the case? Well, nobody ever said this is Palestinian, right? you know, uh, but we ate, we ate Arabic food pretty much every night of the week. My mom, <laughs> poor thing, she uh, had to suffer through a, you know, a, a tutelage under my grandmother, my, my dad's <laughs> mother, um, early, early in their, in my, in, in their marriage, my grandmother parked for months and, you know, and put my mom through, you know, Palestinian cooking school. So, so that's what we, uh, you know, this, this little old lady, I mean, I'm referring now to my mom from, you know, from New England, um, mm-hmm. you know, who was Irish and English and Scottish, you know, she became quite a, quite a fantastic cook of, of Arabic food and of Palestinian food in particular. So that's what we grew up eating, you know, every, every day of the week, every, every night of the week. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to school with what my friends referred to back in the day as pancake bread. That's, you know, what, what people now refer to as pita, right? <laughs> which, you know, what you couldn't find anywhere. It was not, you, you couldn't go to a store and find it. We either baked it at home ourselves or we went to a, there was a, a guy in the, in the Arab community uh, who, who baked it, who baked bread. So, you know, that's what I'm, I took my sandwiches to school and, my, and all the other kids would be, what are you eating? You know, what is that pancake bread? So, you know, I had, I had uncles. I'm actually named for two of my uncles, uh, George 
and Emil, Emil is my middle name. Um, they were two of my uncles and, and then we, and there were more, I had an aunt and, and another uncle and we saw a lot of them, you know, that, and that is that, that, you know, sort of family is the, is the, uh, pillar of Palestinian social life. Not only, obviously many places or many societies are like that. It's nothing unique, but it's, it was much more, you know, family was much more important in our lives than it was among the, and, and I mean by that extended family, uh, than, you know, than my peers, my American peers. So I was kind of vaguely aware that that was, that that was a little bit different. They were really fantastic people, you know? Um, and so growing up, I guess I felt, to be honest with you, I felt like I was privileged to be a part of this, a part of this community. I had such positive feelings and positive images of, um, you know, of, of my uncles and my aunt and my, you know, and my, my other extended family. Uh, and the, you know, sort of like anti-Arab racism, which was certainly there, kind of rolled off my back. You know, it, it, it was never anything that I, that I, um, internalized. However, I was aware of it. And but did you feel it? Well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's and it's part of what got me going on a on a life of sort of activism and, you know, public speaking and writing and all of that stuff, uh, especially about Palestine, but about, you know, the Arab world generally. I was a high school freshman. And uh, in in my world history class, my teacher was giving a presentation to the class. She had, of, of all places, all two places in the world to visit, she had gone to Israel and South Africa. Um, this was, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, probably late 60s, I would have start, started high school. So, you know, so she'd been to those two places and she was, you know, uh, sharing her slides, you know, her photographs from, from the trip with the class. And she said the, um, she was going into the old city of Jerusalem. And this is, of course, after the 67 war. So Israel had taken over East Jerusalem, including the old city of Jerusalem, but only by a couple of years. And, and she said, our Israeli guide told us to hold on to our purses very tightly because thievery is rampant in the Arab world. So I went up to her after class and I said, you know, well, where do you get that? You know, thievery is rampant in the, in the Arab world. You know, that's, that's, that's not, you know, that's not, uh, that's not acceptable. Right. And to her credit, she, you know, she, huh. You know, she thought about it, actually. And then she actually offered me the opportunity to speak to the class about the Arab world and about Palestine. So I took that invitation seriously and I prepared and I studied and I and I and I got a film, you know, that I could share with the class. And so I, I gave that presentation to the class about Palestine. And that was kind of my first that was sort of my coming out as a, you know, as a, as a spokesperson on this issue. And it, it went over well with the class. And I was then invited to, to give the same presentation in all of the world history classes in my high school. Wow. 
you know. So um, this is kind of what I've what I've. It's it's in a way it was a, a preview of what I would experience many times over my life, in that you know people had initial prejudices, but were actually open to learning. And so I, you know, devoted a good part of my life, a lot of effort over time uh, to enlightening to, you know, in, in my view, in any way, enlightening people about the realities of, you know, of, of Arab culture and Palestinian culture and on, you know, sort of the political history of the, of, of the region as well. So up until the time that you went to the American University in Beirut, had you been to the... Middle East at all? Like, other than the exposure you have to your uncles and your family? No. Um, so this was basically something new to you? It was. Yeah, it was, it was new. Uh, it was, it was, I mean, I had a lot of preparation for it. And, you know, for one thing, my father had, had graduated and my father and my uncles had all graduated. Not, not, not all of my uncles, but, you know, several of my uncles had all graduated from the American University of Beirut. And my aunt was actually a professor there, professor of English. So I, I and my sister had uh, preceded me by a few years and gone and studied there. So it was kind of like a family, family tradition, you know. Um, and my aunt had visited us in the United States the summer before I was going there. And she, you know, filled me in on all kinds of stuff. So I, it was, it was new but I felt well prepared for it. Um, and it was, it was a fabulous experience. It was a life-changing experience. Okay, so one of the things that possibly changed your life in a weird way is that, wasn't it at that time that you kind of got deeply into the blues? Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty odd, isn't it? Um, I, you know, I, I, uh, I arrived there I, I probably had a couple of harps with me and yeah, I discovered that there was a, a, a band, uh, that, that played blues and they were all enrolled in this particular class at the university, or at least most of them were, there was, there was one of the band members who was not in the university, but somewhere else. Um, but most of the band members were in this class and they say, well, Hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you join the class? And, and, uh, and, you know, and join the band and we'll see what we can do. They had had a harmonica player, uh, but that person had returned to the United States, you know, that, that summer just before I arrived. So they needed a harp player. And yeah, I fell in with this, with this interesting group of, of, you know, there were some Arabs, some, you know, Americans, and we formed a blues band. Okay, so before that, you, I know you carried your harp with you since the age of 12 or 13. Um, what were you playing on your harmonica at that point? Because I know, I know that you had listened to Paul Butterfield, and, and that made an impact on you, but I don't get the impression that you were playing the blues yeah. throughout your high school days. So what were you playing on your harmonica then? No, I was I was pretty much playing plain blues. Oh, okay. I I w was listening to other things. I mean, I was still kind of into rock. I was I was a big you know Hendrix disciple, you know, uh, and and I still you know listened to and attended a lot of rock concerts. But uh, 
you know, I also, I mean, John Mayle had a, you know, had, had a kind of a, a stature in those days. Um, and, and in high school, one of my friends introduced me to Sonny Boy Williamson. And then I, I learned about Taj Mahal. So I was actually listening to those people and trying to play their stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at that at that stage, my exposure to blues was very sort of spotty, right? I, I mean, I, I learned about Taj Mahal before I learned about, you know, the people he learned from, you know. Uh, I, I, had, I didn't know anything about Little Walter. I didn't know anything about Junior Wells, James Cotton, um, all, those, all those people. But, uh, but I, was, I was a big Taj Mahal fan, and I saw him at UC Davis uh, at least once. And, uh, you know, and I would try to play the stuff that he did on harmonica, uh, tried to play Sonny Boy Williams, Williamson tunes. And, uh, so yeah, I was, it, when it, when it came to harp, I was, I was mostly playing, trying to play blues. So when, when you joined your friends at university with this blues band, it wasn't a really a foreign thing. Like you could yeah. fit in and you could play some blues stuff. Yes. Yes. Now I I have to say, I mean, I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, let's say intermediate at best, right. uh, in terms of my playing. Uh, but I, that I advanced a lot that year. I really learned a lot that year. I learned a lot of songs, learned, learned a lot of good music, heard a lot of great harmonica. You know, that, that's when I learned, um, you know, about Junior Wells and James Cotton and Little Walter I don't remember at the moment, you know, maybe, maybe Big Walter. I don't remember how many, how many of the others I got exposed to. I don't think I heard George Smith, you know, for a while still the, you know, those, those people. And we used to play their stuff, you know, we used to, we used to cover their, their songs. Um, and I would, you know, I would try to, you know, play the stuff that those guys played for the most part. I was, you know, really just trying to copy what they were doing. Um, and my heart playing advanced a lot that year. I wonder what what you thought of the blues, learning it from that perspective from in a different country. If if the idea of blues music and its American origins or its origins from the Mississippi Delta, did that mean anything, or was it all about the music? Or how important was the culture of the blues and the history of the blues to you at that point? Well, I think blues blues has for me anyway a spirit. Right. A particular spirit that's distinct from other genres of music and without necessarily having the vocabulary to describe it at that time, I sure felt it from the beginning. Um and uh, these days I call it, I call blues the party music of the oppressed. Right. Um, and that's just a, a shorthand phrase for the music having a certain joyous uh, aspect. That's the party music part. But of the oppressed, it's, it's, it's born out of pain and suffering and oppression. And you know, and the joyousness in itself, by itself, without being, without necessarily 
turning to explicitly political expression is a form of resistance. I, you know, to me, um, just just being able to party when when you're when you're facing oppression is a life affirming form of resistance. And, you know, as a as as somebody who identifies with the Palestinian people and the Palestinian people struggle for justice, that felt perfectly comfortable for me. That felt perfectly natural. So I mean I know it's it's it seems a little it's it's a weird angle maybe uh to many but like I said it it felt it felt perfectly natural and uh and I think that's you know I really think that that's why the the spirit of the blues snagged me from the very beginning you mentioned before that around your early 20s you had contemplated on <clears throat> you had you had thought about the possibility of pursuing music um, in a big way. Was it because of this experience at the university in Beirut or was it another reason? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much because of that. And, and, you know, I'd gotten, so I'd gotten okay. I'd gotten so I could actually play and I loved it. And it, it, it was just uh, extremely fulfilling, um, you know, to, to, to do music. And, and so I was, I was tempted. So I wonder what that meant. Had had you pursued that, would you what would what would that have meant, do you think, to to pursue music at that point in your life? I know it's speculating, but like I wonder what you had imagined pursuing music. You mean what 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 would have happened? Yeah, like what what, what would, would what would your idea have been to pursue music and what do you think would have happened had you done so? Uh you're right. It is it's speculative and impossible, truly, to give an answer. I, I let me let me say this. Um, so it would have meant joining a band. You know, I would have I would have I would have found people to play with. I was this this the time that I'm referring to. I was living in Washington D.C. I was a graduate student at Georgetown University at the time. Okay, so you've already come back. Yes, I had I had returned to yeah the the. Uh, the program that I had uh, done at the at the American University of Beirut was a one year junior year abroad program. Now I had returned to Beirut after that. After I graduated, I got my you know my BA. Um, I had returned to Beirut in the hope of continuing graduate study there, but the civil war broke out in 1975, and the, and and I had no way to maintain myself. I had a, I'd received a, a teaching fellowship from, from the university. Uh, and that would, that would have been the way to, you know, to, to, to maintain myself, but this university wasn't opening and I, I had no income, you know? So, so that's when I came back and I ended up, uh, ended up for various reasons at Georgetown. Uh, Washington DC has a, a quite a history in the blues as well. And they have amazing players down there. Yeah. Yes. And I heard a lot of great music while I was there. You know, there's, there's a, there's a famous club called the Child Herald. Um, and my, my, the first place I lived in the, in DC was about 
three blocks away from it. So I was there all the time and I saw a lot of great musicians, some local, some touring. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite inspiring. And uh, so, yes, but uh, it would have, if had, you know, pursuing music at that time would have involved, you know, probably leaving graduate school and uh, in joining a band and, you know, touring and all those things. I don't really, what, what I wonder about, to be honest with you, is when, if ever, you know, my, well, when, when my individual musical voice would have emerged. And I, I imagine it would have emerged earlier, although I'm not sure it would have necessarily been the voice that I have now. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I, at, at that time, there's no doubt that I was not an original player. I was just trying to do a better, you know, to get better at doing what everybody else was doing. Right. Um, and, and I didn't really, you know, didn't have uh, kind of a, a vision or anything uh, that was any, that would, that would have been innovative in any particular way. Now, <clears throat> You know, as you know, things went the way they did, and I spent a long time focusing on on professional and family life, and 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 not on music. Um, and it, and then I, you know, I was sort of casting about for new music, and I came across the music of Paul Delay. This was in the mid to late '90s, and I was totally taken by what Paul was doing on the chromatic, and that that was what inspired me in turn to focus on the chromatic and it wasn't until i had been playing the chromatic for a while that i started to hear my my own musical voice um i I wasn't sounding I, i wasn't doing stuff that other people were doing and it sounded to me it sounded good i wasn't playing the traditional licks i was doing you know different stuff and it 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 you know, as I, as I got better at it, it, it started to sound pretty cool. And, um, it took another couple of steps, but, uh, you know, but that's what, that's, that's when I started thinking to myself, okay, now I'm doing something that's truly worth recording. Now, you know, would I have gotten there earlier if I had, uh, you know, if I had uh, gone into music at, at, you know, at the age of 25, probably. <laughs> I'm not sure where it would have led me, how it would have happened, how it would have unfolded. But um, I do have this slightly contrarian attitude, uh, which is, you know, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. I never have in anything <laughs> I've done. I've, I've always had this, you know, I want to do it my way. You know, I want to do something and I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. Um, and me, and I would have, you know, perhaps found a different way to do it had I gone into music at 25. It, it does take, you know, in music anyway, it, it takes a while to build the confidence to do something original. So I don't know, I don't know what, when it would have happened or how it would have happened, but I, but I do have that, kind of that drive to, to be, to, to, to be an individual and to, and to say something distinctive. Sorry, I'm curious to, to figure out how you found that voice 
because we shouldn't minimize what you did. I mean, you decided to pursue, um, I, I guess, a law degree, um, and you, you have a PhD in anthropology. You became a public defender. You're, you have a you were a pro, you had a private practice yeah. as a defense lawyer, and you also taught law. So there was a lot going on in your life, and I presume you had a family and raised your kids. That's right. Yeah. So at what point? How do you, how do you actually with doing all that and not pursuing music um, in any big way? But I presume the harmonic was still a big part of you, yeah. or you would still play it. Right. How do you find the time to find your own voice? while everything else is going on? Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I always maintained my passion for the instrument. I always had a harp in my pocket or my briefcase. <laughs> I used to have a, a long walk from the train station to my workplace, and I'd play the harmonica every day back and forth. And then, and then uh, it truly was the inspiration, like I said, of Paul DeLay that got me going on the chromatic. And then once, once I got rolling on the chromatic, now I should say, I, I, I mean, you know, I'd had chromatic, I'd had a chromatic harmonica from at le- I think from the very beginning, my dad actually had a, had a 64 hole, you know, uh, uh, honer chromatic that, that I, in, uh, that he gave me. And so I, I've always had, starting from the very beginning, pretty much, I've had a chromatic harmonica around. But like most other blues players, I'd sort of pick it up uh, every, you know, every tenth song, or not even that that often. Um, uh, you know, so I really, I, I just played it in a very rudimentary way. Um, but when I started, you know, again due to the inspiration of Paul DeLay and seeing the, the amazing stuff that he did on chromatic. Uh, I, I call him the little Walter of the chromatic, acknowledging that little Walter is the, the greatest diatonic player ever. Paul, to my view, was the greatest chromatic player ever in blues, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the world of chromatic players out there who do in other genres is like they're mind blowing uh, musicians out there. Right. But just talking about the blues. When I when I started fiddling around with the chromatic and really focusing on the chromatic, I was I was I mean, yeah, I I initially I was trying to play Paul Delay stuff and and it didn't always work, you know. So I I did what I could and I sort of blundered into my own style, you know. Like I said, it's it's you know once once. It's like a snowball, you know, you, you, you get rolling in a particular direction and it starts to build on itself, starts to feel pretty good, starts to be pretty fun. It's much easier to practice, you know, when you think you're sounding good. Um, and then, you, you know, you get you get a little feedback along the way from others and, you know, and, and that's how it happens. And, and I actually did get crucial feedback from from people at 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 critical junctures and and you know probably the most important of which was from little charlie Beatty, god rest his soul mm-hmm. he backed me at a at a mark hummel event um there was a there was a sort of a you know a competition uh sponsored by dave barrett who's a harmonica instructor in the san jose area dave barrett um you know sponsored this swing harmonica 
songwriting competition, which I entered. I'd done some work with, with Dave over the years. And so I knew Dave and he's a great guy, by the way. Uh, I, I entered this competition. I entered a, a chromatic tune that I had, that I'd composed. And, um, and we got to perform each, each of the contestants where there are three finalists got to perform our tunes at a, at one of Mark Hummel's blow-offs, you know, his famous right. harmonica blow-offs. And, um, and after, after the competition, which, which went to another guy who's a great, great player and a great guy, great musician as well. Um, little Charlie, I, I happened b- totally by coincidence to run into him the following day in Berkeley, which is, you know, the town next door to us. And, uh, I saw him and, and, uh, and he said, "Hey, you know what you were doing is really cool. Keep it up." Wow. And um, so that was, you know, to have a major figure like that. Um, I've I've always loved his his playing, and I've always loved the the band and Rick's, you know, Rick's playing, including his chromatic playing, which is very very good. Uh, anyway, uh, to hear that from him was. Uh, and little Charlie also played amazing too, right? He did. I mean, his harmonica playing yeah, is yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway, so so that was that was quite inspiring, and that's that's you know partly what gave me the courage to invite him to record on my first album, and then of course he recorded on each of my four albums. Uh, but that that validation from somebody of that caliber and with that kind of ear. Uh, told me, okay, uh, so I'm not crazy. Uh, I'm not the only one who thinks that this is interesting and, and worth pursuing, you know? So, um, so that was, and that was in, that was in 2012. So it was another couple of years before I actually got it all together to record my first album. How much gigging were you doing? I mean, it sounds like you were writing songs and you're obviously p- playing um, on, your, on your way to and from work to yeah. the train but yeah. how much were you actually playing live in a band setting at that point very little uh we you know our our band from beirut which we called the bliss street blues band um we had a couple of reunions in 2003 in london and 2006 in beirut uh and i i formed bands with students at my law school at hastings college of the law in san francisco <laughs> Um, and we, we would play at school functions and, and, you know, parties and things like that. Um, uh, but, but that was really about it. I wasn't, I wasn't playing with professional musicians for the most part. Um, and, uh, it was all, it was all pretty casual stuff. Okay. So being a teacher, um, a professor of law, I, I know that you would have to, I guess it's not performance, but you would be used to being in front of a class and and teaching. Um, I I presume your work as a public defender, you would do the same in in that you would be in in the courts defending people. Yeah, right. Does that help? I mean, does that even even help you in your playing? Like, I can't even imagine at this particular event with little Charlie, (laughs) how you felt... (laughs) Um, playing live yeah. at this event in front of, I presume, many decent harmonica players. Yeah. Um, when you don't have a lot of live experience, tell me about getting that live experience or how you felt about performing live. Well, it, you know, 
so uh, it is, I, I would say that my teaching as a law professor and, uh, and, you know, being a public defender prepared me for performance in a couple of ways. Um, being a public defender in particular kind of puts you in a, forces you to learn how to cope uh, calmly and rationally with a lot of adversity. So just, just having that, that armor, you know, to, to, you know, to deal with whatever comes, um, I, I think, I think that was helpful, you know, and, and to some extent in, you know, sort of patter with the crowd and that sort of thing, you know, having, having been a law professor helps, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with public speaking and, and outside of the classroom, I've done a lot of public speaking on, on, you know, on Palestine, on, on, uh, you know, you, on U.S. policy in the Middle East toward Iraq and the and the like. So, you know, I've done a lot of that, and and some of those, you know, uh, situations too have also in, involved, you know, th- things things that I say can get some people very mad, and I've had some, I've dealt with some pretty angry uh, audiences. <laughs> so that's that's all helpful. Um, you know the the thing ultimately that uh, I think made me a good law professor, and, and not to brag, but I I did a win teaching awards and that sort of thing, was absolute mastery of my topic. And uh, and so I you know I knew I knew what I was talking about, and that uh, I was comfortable and confident in in what I had to share with the class. So in terms of you know. Ultimately, you know, playing music, I had to prepare and practice my tail off so that I was ready um, and, 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 you know, and could play at a high level. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you that, that it, uh, I didn't feel nervous because I did, you know, it was, it was tough. It was a challenge. Um, as I, you know, like, like with anything, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get at it and the more you enjoy it. And once you start actually having fun, you know, that, that translates, that, that, that's communicated to the audience. I think, again, it's, it's also like a snowball. You, you know, when, when you're having fun and then, then the people start responding and then you get a little looser and then they, they start having even more fun. You know, it's just, just goes that way. It, it, you know, I, I guess the, the, you know, the, the conclusion is that those, those things, being a public defender, being a law professor helped to some extent, but it wasn't a substitute for being on top of my music, being on top of my instrument. Um, and, and, uh, and then, you know, just repetitions and experience and getting better at it. I I wonder how long it took you, and I'm not sure if you've reached this point where you're confident with your person, with your stage persona, and not just the playing, but just getting up there and being who you are and presenting yourself as Big Harp George. Did that come quickly, or does is that still a work in progress? Oh, I I mean, I aspire to continue to evolve and change and you know adapt and and grow. Uh, so I'm never going to say that I've reached the end of the road, and you know this is you know what you see is what you get and right. you're going to continue to get this, you know, going forward. Um, but I, I would say that, that, you know, the stage persona and the stage presence was 
was part that, you know, that actually came pretty comfortably for me. And I, I have a particular, you know, a particular personality and, and a persona and, um, and it's, you know, may not be for everybody. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit, uh, you know, intellectual, it's a little bit, it's humorous and sometimes self-deprecating, but, you know, people, people have fun at my gigs and, and I have fun too. So when little Charlie gave you that word of encouragement, you said that kind of helped you to pursue it more seriously, but you said it took another two years for you to actually record your first album. Yeah. Right. How did that decision come about? Like, I, I, I think it was because I, I believe you debuted your debut album came out when you were fifty nine, and and yeah. that that album also, um, I believe, got nominated for best new artist. Correct. Yeah, that is true. Which is which is an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. Um, the the I, I need to credit one other person uh, in this evolution. The you know the other. It was earlier. Uh, Otis Grand, you know, he he encouraged me to record and to and to get serious about music. He was out here in the, you know, like I said, two thousand two thousand one, recording an album with Joe Lewis Walker. I ended up playing a song on the album, and he he after after that was all done, he said, "Hey George, get it together, get yourself a little band, you know, um, get out there and start playing." So. And, and, you know, I, I told him at the time, look, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not living a blues life, you know, I'm a, what, what do I have to, what do I have to contribute to the music? And, and he said, you, you never know until you try. And so it, it really was the combination of hit of that encouragement of his and the, you know, from, from little Charlie as well, that I was. I actually was developing something unique and different to, to say to the blues music world, which is, you know, in, initially it was about my, uh, about my chromatic playing, which, you know, is pretty much, un, pretty much unique if I say so myself. Um, in, in, the, in my featuring the chromatic to begin with, uh, and in what I do on it, uh, it's, 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 pretty distinctive from what most other people are doing. As time has gone on, I've kind of, I would say that my musical voice is equally expressed through my songwriting, maybe even more than my chromatic harmonica playing. Um, that, that has become a more central part of my music. So, but it was, it was, uh, it was, like I said, the, the, the encouragement that I got from, from these two different people at these two different junctures in time. And it, and it just took a while to, to come together. And, and how did it come together? Did you say, is this, did you retire from your academic work and, and said, okay, now I want to become a full-time musician or what, what happened? So you know, it was, it was like that, that, ins that, uh, gig and that exchange with Charlie happened in early 2012. And it was as, as I continued to work on, you know, on the instrument and I started to think like, okay, this is, this is real stuff. This is, I've got something new to say, uh, and, and I'm going to start getting ready to do it. Um, and so it, it just, it took me a little while to kind of 
build the ambition and then to actually put the, the pieces together. And I was at that time still teaching full time. So, you know, I met with various people. I met with various uh, musicians, eventually got hooked up with Chris Burns, who has produced all of my albums and has played keyboards on all of my albums. Chris is a longtime, you know, Bay Area blues jazz musician who's who's uh, played with tons and tons of great people and uh, has a, a lot of musical experience and a great ear and, and he's a great keyboard player. So we started working on, you know, preparing the songs for the first album and recorded them in early 2014. The album came out. I, I mean, I was thrilled with the, you know, with my first album. I was really, I, I didn't know that I had that in me and it was just incredibly fulfilling to have it come out. Uh, and it was at that point that I decided that I could leave my, you know, my, uh, my law teaching behind and, and focus on music. So it was, it was because of the experience, the, the joy, you know, the, the great pleasure and fulfillment from doing that first album that I thought, wow, you know, um, I've, I've done this law teaching work for a long time. It's been very rich, very fulfilling. I got no, you know, nothing against it. It's I'm still enjoying it, but wow, there's this other thing that I could do that is so much fun and that's so fulfilling and that, I haven't done before. So it's a new, you know, a new frontier. It's almost like having a second life, you know, and it was of course, in a way coming back to something that I had hoped to do at one, at an earlier point in my life and just things didn't line up for it to happen. Um, and suddenly I, here I, here I am with this, you know, with this possibility. And, and uh, so I jumped on it. So tell me what you had, what, if there was any expectations on your part, what this move would have meant. Like, obviously, you wouldn't have predicted that you would be nominated for Best New Artist, which is amazing. Yeah. But beyond that, what did you what did you have in mind to accomplish by doing the album? Did you have a number of units you wanted to sell? Did you have places you wanted to play? What, what goals did you have? Yeah, I... I mean the 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 main the main goal. I will admit that when I started, I kind of my mission was to say to the blues world that the chromatic harmonica has great you know great possibilities that have not been exploited in blues. We've been sitting on this instrument and not really advancing in our playing of it with the exception of Paul DeLay for, you know, decades. And myself, I, I don't want to disparage any other players. There are a lot of great, great harmonica players out there. And many of them are much better than I am. I don't, I, you know, I'm not, but I have the, I, myself personally, I have a kind of a restless ear. I want to hear new things. I, 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 I you know, I want to, I, I mean, I do. I, I, I listen to the, you know, to the, to the early players still, and I love them and I, I love listening to them and I, you know, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to do what Junior Wells did or little Walter did, or, you know, why, why do that? Why is that? Uh, that's, that's not a, a worthy goal for me anyway. Right. I want to do something new and different. So my, yeah, my, my goal was to, was to say to the blues world, look, 
here's a new you know here's a new thing to do let's let's get off this you know we're, we're we've been sort of stuck for a while in i i think in the harmonica world we've been doing the same old things for a long long time what can we do that's new and different here's something what do you say and it's like kind of throwing down your cards in a card game take a look this is what i got so that was that was my my first you know my first ambition was was to, to kind of make a mark for the chromatic and to try to push the blues discussion forward, the blues harmonica discussion in particular. And by discussion, I don't mean, I'm, I'm talking about the musical discussion. Right. Uh, not, not, not the, you know, not what we do chit chatting, but, uh, but rather right. the, you know, kind of pushing the music ahead. That was my, that was my ambition with that album. Beyond that, as as a mu- musical career, did you have goals set? Not when I started, but as I have, uh, as as I have kind of, I think, settled in as a as a songwriter, as I've kind of gained my sea legs. You know, it's 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 about for for me again you know like i'm i'm not trying to tell anybody what to do or anything you know it's i'm not a i'm not a preacher or a proselytizer but you know the the songwriting is another way of saying okay here's a here's a way to go you know here's a way to update the music here's a way to sing about you know new things within the same spirit uh but but with a different you know, with a different face, you know, it's, it's, it's the same old blues spirit, but we're, you know, the topics are 21st century and the attitudes are, are contemporary and, you know, more and more, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about a world that I see that, you know, it, it's, it's just another form of commentary on the world that we live in and um and possibly with some suggestions for you know implications for how how things could be better i wonder what surprised you about this journey well there are a lot of things i didn't know about that you know they they've mostly been good things um i didn't know that i had the songs in me that that i have written to this point and I'm really proud of the of the, of the songs that I have done I've I've written and recorded close to 50 songs uh over the last few years and um and 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 I'm really proud of of most of them uh and uh that was that was cool to you know to discover I had that I had that in me I didn't I really did I had tried writing a blues song, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, and it was just stupid. And it it was, it kind of took an unlocking of my brain to be a more successful songwriter that that's similar to the unlocking that happened with the chromatic harmonica. It happened first with the harmonica, where I, where I, you know, just kind of, started to see things differently and to play obviously to play things differently and and um and to and to do my own you know to find my own voice 
it 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 happened on the instrument and then it happened in songwriting and if you if you look at if you compare my early songs from the first album let's say to the songs on my fourth album or second and third albums i think you pretty clearly see a progression musically in you know in terms of the musical complexity and in terms also of the ambition of the of the topics that i you know that i write about the songs that i you know the, the you know the themes that i that i deal with you know that's that's been neat um it's been extremely gratifying to work with the musicians that i have there's some really wonderful people and i really do you know i i think i used the phrase early on you know my musical family mm-hmm. that's really how i feel about them there's there's a special bond i think that gets formed when you create music with people with this last album in particular i really felt like people poured their creative energy into it uh in a really unreserved and generous way um and it, it you know i think that's why i mean i i consider it my my best album you know it was because of everybody coming together and feeling the music and putting their you know putting their souls into into the music um and that's just a it's a it's a beautiful thing to experience with people and you know the i i, I mean the the love that i feel for the people that i've worked with is is really something that i i wouldn't know i didn't you know necessarily expect uh but it's 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 extremely rich so let's talk about the latest album so the album is called living in the city you recorded right before the pandemic so it must have been a little difficult to decide when to release it if to release it whatever and and yeah and then yeah. the other thing is under these very difficult circumstances, there seems to be a buzz about this album, and you've gotten a lot of nice reviews. Tell me about the thinking of what what went through your mind when you finished recording, and then the pandemic happened, and then what what do you do? Yeah, good question. So we finished the recording. I think I think we had I had the hard copy album in hand by mid-March or maybe late March of last year. So, you know, we recorded in the end of January and then uh, like I've done with all my previous albums, I sort of sit on the music for a a week or two, listen intensively, and then go back into the studio and add, you know, replace, whatever, fix um, anything that that we're not satisfied with. Uh, And that, that, process was pretty complete with the exception of the one the you know the the last song on the album meet me at the fence was recorded in several places it was recorded here and then it went to uh you know to israel palestine and amal Murkus, the, the you know the woman singer on that album she recorded and then it came back to the united states to new york to her son who is firas zret the guy who plays kanun on that song. So that, that, you know, that process took a little while to, to happen, but basically we were done, you know, by, by mid to late February, we, you know, had all the artwork was done in advance. We were all ready to go, got it produced. And then of course, you know, the, the, the pandemic was unfolding and, 
you know, we just, uh, I was poised, the original plan, the original release date was, I think, May 15th. (laughs) And we just said, oh my God, you know, we we just have to see see what's going to happen. So I consulted at various points with people. Uh, I was, you know, I was, I was super excited about the album when we finished it. I really wanted to get it out there and share it with people, but it just like, you know, nothing was happening. I mean, the whole music world had come to a standstill, it seemed. Mm-hmm. I talked with, with people. I talked with, you know, friends in the, in the business, you know, uh, magazine publishers and festival organizers and, various others like that and club owners and, and that sort of thing. Um, nobody knew, you know, nobody knew what to, what to advise me. And, you know, of course, none of us knew at the time how long things were going to go. So at, at a certain point I just said, well, heck, you know, let's get it out there. And what happens happens, you know, it's um, it just, we, we just have to take a chance. And so we, uh, we released it on the 10th of October yeah, I, you know, it's, it's been, it's been the, you know, the response has been really gratifying. Uh, the reviews have been very thoughtful and very, uh, very generous. And, um, I'm, you know, it was, a, it was a, it was a tough year to release an album, but, you know, uh, sometimes those are the, those are the breaks that life hands you. And in, you know, in a general sense, I'm not griping. It's, you know, this is, uh, just the world we live in. Well, it's it's comforting to know that it did get such positive reviews, or that, that there is a little bit of a buzz about the album under these circumstances. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's definitely gratifying, and you know the 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 people who worked on it, who did publicity on it, did a great job. And uh, I know a lot of a lot of you know uh, DJs around the world have have given it plenty of spins, and I've, I've gotten some really lovely feedback from you know from fans and and that sort of thing so it's it's um it's been it's been very um it's been very satisfying um the on the live side of things when you first decided that you would release um your first album um it sounds like people accepted you very quickly and you know just the fact that being named the best artist would be one proof of that but were you surprised by that? How people received you, as as a relatively new artist that's at, at an advanced age? Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, I was. Yes, I was surprised. I was surprised. I was very gratified. Of course, um, I had no idea. I mean, I, I didn't have much of an idea. Let's put it that way. Okay, I know. I me and little Charlie, we thought it was cool. Uh, but you know, how that, how the broader blues world would respond to it. I really didn't know. I didn't, I didn't have any clear expectation, but it was, it was a thrill and a real honor to, to get the nomination. Um, it was, it was very exciting and it, it gave me, you know, it gave me faith that there was that much room anyway in the, in the blues world for something new and different. So uh, that that was very encouraging, and you know it's it's one big part of the reason why I kept doing it. And how did you become a better songwriter? How does that happen? Well, you know, experience and 
And like I said, I, I think it took, it, it took that unlocking of my thinking about, about songwriting, you know, the, the musical side of it, the, you know, the, the, the growing musical complexity of my songs. I started off, you know, I think on my first album, everything that I wrote was a 12 bar blues. And, you know, some of the lyrics were super simple, you know, three, three verses. Um, and one song, uh, cell phone hater was, was, you know, kind of in, in the humorous, cynical (laughs) sort of mode that, that I've, that I've continued with in a variety of other songs. So that was a little bit of a kind of a preview of some later things that I would do in terms of theme, but musically they were super simple. You know, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of, I have a restless ear and I don't myself want to hear the same thing over and over again. And so I sure as heck don't want to play the same thing over and over again. You know, I, I'm, I am my own, uh, I'm my first fan, you know, I play for not, not to be, not to sound arrogant or whatever, but I, I play my music for myself. I play the music that I want to play and that I want to hear. And, um, and so that has driven me toward variety and, you know, wanting to, wanting to searching for ways to make things sound diverse and interesting. And so, you know, I don't know if you're if you're aware of my my sort of my venture into Brazilian styles, uh, but uh, you know I've been I've been over the last decade or so I've been privileged to to visit Brazil for mostly for professional reasons over the last you know decade I've I've gone maybe six or seven times to Brazil, and my friends down there have introduced me to. Brazilian music that I probably would never have been exposed to, but for my trips there and my friendships there. Uh, on my second album, I, the 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 title song actually "Wash My Horse in Champagne" is inspired by Brazilian history, and on the one hand, and in a Brazilian musician and music song in particular. By uh, on the other hand, you know, I I listened to this music and it was just just from having been around for a while. And, and, and uh, like I said, just having my mind open up to the possibilities, you know, I listened to this particular song and I said, you know, it wouldn't be impossible to take this bass line and this groove and just run it through a kind of a blues chord progression, you know, and it would sound cool, I think, you know, so that's, I mean, that's where we came up with, that's how we came up with Wash My Horse in, in Champagne as I found these, these, these things worked, it opened up more and more possibilities. So I would, I, I listen, you know, when I listen to other music, a lot of times I'm, I'm, you know, I'm listening with an ear open to musical ideas and I'll hear somebody do something in a, in a tune. I'll say, Hey man, that's, that's cool. It's, it might be the, an ending or a beginning, or it might be a structure of a song. It might be a bridge or whatever. And, um, and once I, I started figuring out that a lot of these things are not that hard, they're not impossible. And of course, let me, let me also say, let me also credit Chris Burns here, because without his support, there's a lot of this that I would not have been able to do. You know, he, 
oftentimes I come up with a melody, I come up with lyrics and he'll figure out chords for me to play and we'll, you know, toss around ideas and he'll suggest changes and that sort of thing. So he's, he's been instrumental in helping me develop my songwriting. I've, I've learned it's, it's challenging, but it's not rocket science. And just having, having an open ear and an open mind, I think is probably the, 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 you know, the, the most important thing to, to my development as a songwriter. Well, George, it's been a, a pretty amazing journey, if you ask me. And, and um, the fact that you take this on and change your life completely is, you know, I find that fascinating. Um, I'm going to wrap this up, but let me ask you my final question. Sure. What's the greatest lesson you've learned from this new phase of your life, this this adventure into music what what's the greatest thing you've learned from that journey do i have to only say one no, you can say more than one <laughs> um yeah i guess what i've really learned in an organic way that is to say you know kind of from the inside and through my own experience is the power of music the power of music to to move people um and to inspire people you know, the, the, the beauty of creation with other people, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a member of a group of, of a band, um, is, you know, it's, it's been, that's been a wonderful learning experience and that, you know, what, what my old friend Otis said to me that you never really know what you're capable of until you try. That's another really, really important lesson. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people out there probably have capabilities that they're not aware of. And uh, I'm just grateful that I had the opportunity to, you know, to, to pursue music the way I have and to have produced the music that I have. And I'm, I'm a very blessed person. Well said. Um, am I mistaken? Is, was Otis Grand, was he in your band in Beirut? He was. That's pretty amazing. (laughs) George, thank you so much for doing this. Um, It's it's a pleasure getting to know you. Oh, thank you. It was was wonderful speaking with you, Marco. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.